a wonderful day before the Lord. And I speak on behalf of PLT, Pastor Bill and Pastor Chep, that in this church, Chelton, a church of hope, may Christ be magnified, may he be preached, and may he be exalted. And as a people of God, as you worship him, that we'll be marked by his love to us, and that we will be known by the people of love, the way we love others, the way we love each other. And I pray that that will become so contagious, that will become so attractive. So in this gathering, may Christ be continually exalted. Thanks for entrusting us, and thanks for allowing us to serve you. Continue to pray with us that we will serve God's kingdom with your help. Will you bow your head with me and pray before you dive in? God, we are grateful for all the great work you're doing in us and through us. And God, as we dive into Jonah 2 today, oh Lord, speak to us, your servants, listen. May your go forth and do the work that only you can do. In your precious name we pray, amen. So, uh, for the past couple Sundays, we have been talking about the book of Jonah we have launched into our new series in this book. First week, we said we are, in a sense, so much like Jonah. We are so self-righteous, thinking we are so much better than the others. I don't want to go over there, Nineveh. While God has called Jonah to go to Nineveh, the northeast, Jonah flees to the utmost west, to Tarshish. And even though we are like Jonah, self-righteous, Last week, Pastor Bill walked us through that even though sometimes we can be like Jonah, God is still God. God is already out there redeeming his people. So we should join with him in his effort of saving God's people to his glory. And that brings us to today's chapter, Jonah 2. Today, I'll strictly focus on Jonah's prayer because the entire chapter is about prayer. And next Sunday, Pastor Shep will walk us through how this fits in the overall context of the book. Today, we'll learn about Jonah's prayer in the belly. He's in the fish. But how Jonah's prayer in the belly can teach us how we should pray when we are in the valley. Sometimes life can be pretty challenging. And yet, there is a way that we can pray before the Lord and we can still ask God to help us. Uh, may the Lord help us. As you dive into his word. Uh, four things we learn from Jonah's prayer. Now, if you say, wait a second, Jim. You always have three points. Four points? How can it be? Well, today is the way to try to get out of my box. So, you know, I hope you get over it. If you're OCD out there, a little panicking over four points. Too bad, I still have four points. <laughs> First, <laughs> recognize your distress. One to five. At least it all starts to R. It's to remember. Recognize your distress, one to five. Second, remember who God is, six to seven. Third, reorder your love, verse eight. Fourth, recommit your volition, nine. When I say volition, I mean your conscious choice, your will. Recognize your distress, remember who God is, reorder your love, recommit your volition. Got that? Recognize, remember, reorder, recommit. Let's go. So first, how does Jonah begin his prayer? 
recognize your distress. Look verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. I mean 117. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. When he was stuck in the belly of the fish, Jonah begins to pray. Verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to you. And he answered me, from deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depth, into the very heart of the sea. And the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To say the least here, verse 2, Jonah said, In my distress I called out to God. Distress. It's a real thing. Since the beginning of the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, suffering, distress, anxiety, agony, all that entered into the, this world. And throughout the history, people tried to make sense of this suffering, this distress and difficulty. We don't have monopoly over it. For many other thought systems and religions also try to find the answer. How to face your distress. Distress, life can be very hard. How do you face that? Let me briefly walk you through. I mean, if you are Buddhist, Buddhism believes that this world is all illusion. Therefore, when life gets really hard, you must teach your heart to be transcendent. Oh, that's okay. Don't focus too much. It's all illusion. It's not real. How does Hinduism make sense of distress and suffering? Karma, right? You get what you get. What comes around goes around. If you are suffering and facing incredible distress in your life, it's because you have done wrong in your previous life. Therefore, you must pay your debt. It's only fair. You get what you get. And then by next life, maybe you will get a little better at it. Okay. Do I believe in Buddhism way of understanding distress and suffering? Do I believe in Hinduism? Not really. If I believed in that, I wouldn't be here standing before you. Let me walk you through one more thought. This is, I think, a particularly important. The reason I'm explaining all this is I'm about to explain why Christian view of suffering is rather unique in distress. Let me explain Greek Stoicism, Roman philosopher. They thought feelings are for the weakling. Those are all bad. Stuff it in. It's all about mind. Conceal, don't feel. Be the good girl. You always have to be. Wouldn't that be a great song? Frozen fans out there. Yes, feelings are for the weakling. It's all about mind. So how does that look like? If you're having greatly hard time, distress, suffering, suck it up. Pull yourself up by bootstrap. You are for the weakling. I think this is especially important to elaborate because I don't think personally much of Buddhism influence or Hinduism influence the church. But I do think Stoicism greatly influenced even in our gathering as well. How does the Stoicism translate into our lives in the church? You, must be, you may have been facing incredibly difficult time in your life. But you come, you're like, oh, wow, I must be good. Okay, I'm dying inside. Oh, God is good, so I'm good. We wear a facade as if everything is okay. Yes, God is good. But that also does not mean that we have to be good and smiley 24-7 either. 
It is okay to be not okay. But the Greek stoicism bleeds into it, and we have language for it. It's called legalism. We feel like we have to perform in order to measure up. Oh, I must smile and act like everything's fine. So rather than becoming the people of vulnerability, we become people of performance. As if our spiritual maturity measured up by how much we can stuff down our feeling. Now, that's how these different cultures try to make sense of suffering. How about the culture that we live in right now? The modern Western culture. Charles Taylor, in his book, Secular A's, defines our culture as the culture of secularism. And the word secular means nowism. Now is all there is. As a result, while Greek, while Buddhist, while Hindus, they all have some sort of way of understanding suffering. Because for modern Western culture, now is all there is. There's no meaning in suffering. Suffering is something to be avoided at all costs. So perhaps out of any cultures in the past, we are worst perhaps at dealing with distress and suffering. Dr. Paul Brand is a pioneering surgeon, orthopedic surgeon. He, was a, he spent a unique career because he spent first half of his career in India, second half of his career in the United States. And this is what he writes in his book, The Gift of Pain. He co-wrote there with Philip Yancey. But listen to what he says in his book. He wrote, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated. But they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. Sometimes we are more shocked and surprised by the fact that we are suffering than the suffering itself. What does Bible tell us though? First Peter 4.12. Brothers and sisters, don't be surprised at these fiery trials as though something strange were happening to you. Bible tells us don't be surprised as though something strange were expected. But because we are not expecting anything, we expect life should be walking the park in a sense. Who said that? As a result, when suffering and distress comes, it destroys us. Why is COVID so hard? Well, we didn't see it coming. And we are sometimes more surprised by the fact that there are suffering, there are sickness than the COVID itself. Yet Christian view of suffering is rather unique. What does Jonah say here? In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. You listened to my cry. Why is Christian view of suffering unique? While this modern Western culture said, avoid at all costs, only time that we are willing to face suffering is you're willing to face suffering in order to minimize future suffering. You work hard so that you can eliminate all suffering. Watch the Christian view of suffering. When we cry out to the Lord, He hears us. He answers us. Suffering, we don't only have a God who understands suffering. Actually, we have suffering God. That's the core identity of who we are. Jesus suffered and died and bled for us at the cross. Through His suffering, through His death, we have been redeemed. So here when Jonah says, from deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. It's metaphorically speaking, at the bottom of the sea, I called for help. For Jesus, this was not metaphorical. From the deep in the realm of the dead, Jesus went there. 
He descended into hell for us. He suffered and he died for us. So when we suffer, there is meaning to it. We only become like our suffering servant who suffered and died for us. Tim Keller in his book, The Gift of Walking, through, walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, writes this. Christianity teaches that contra Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra karma, suffering is often unfair. But contra secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. What is it, church? Is it your physical health just failing you? Maybe perhaps your beloved ones are having the worst time of their lives and it grieves you, hurts too much. Perhaps you feel like nobody sees you. Perhaps you are an emotional wreck right now. This has been so hard for you. But if faced rightly, it can only drive us like a nail into the love of God. And we can gain even more spiritual equilibrium. Why? Because we have a very suffering servant who descended into the deep realm of the dead for us. So that when we suffer, we still know we are not forsaken. When we cry out to him, he hears us. When he Jonah cries, God answered him. Do you know him? Let me address one of the main sufferings, distress of modern days, culture we live in. Uh, the distress of disagreement. Those are real things, isn't it? But sometimes while the Bible tells us to be not be surprised, we are sometimes more surprised that there is disagreement than disagreement itself. So rather than saying, okay, somebody disagrees with me, it becomes, don't you know better? How could you? We are so shocked and surprised. Well, but let me tell you, today's gin sometimes disagree with tomorrow's gin. I even disagree with myself. And you disagree with your spouse here and there. Family conflict. Then why in the world are we so surprised when there's someone disagree with us and that we treat them as if they, just, they don't know better? Oh, my goodness. Distress of disagreement is real. But they are also made in the image of God. And if they know Jesus Christ as their Savior, Jesus died for them too. So even if you face distress of disagreement rightly, it can only drive us to know God even better through their different perspective and different lifestyle. So we should be the people of God who understand and accept yet faithfully walk through suffering for what God has called us. Another lesson we learn from this. Look, verse 2, when Jonah said in his distress, he called out to God and God answered him, right? So you would expect in verse 3, so Jonah was back in the dry land and now life is happily ever after. Like a Disney movie. Not really. And verse 3, how does, how does it go? God answers Jonah, but verse 3, you heard me into the depth, into the very heart of the sea. Like look at verse 5, the engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. What does that mean? Jonah is still in the thick of the ocean. Nothing changed circumstantially, even though God answered his prayer. In other words, sometimes and often a lot of times, answer of prayer does not depend on circumstantial change. 
God heard you, that doesn't mean that your circumstance will turn just like that. In fact, if you ever read Pauline letters in the New Testament, there rarely is any mention of Paul asking for circumstantial change. But Paul's prayer often is that even in the middle of your sorrow and suffering, that you may know him. You may know our suffering, God who suffered for you. He always drives back to the gospel. What do you learn? Church, if God has called you to the valley, don't try to crawl out of it too quick. God wants you to faithfully walk through it. And in his time, he will deliver you. See, it is not the top of the mount where all the trees and plants and grass grow. It is deep down in a valley where everything grows, trees, plants, and grass. So faithfully walk through it. Even in your suffering, God is with you. If you read Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan. But do you know how the chapter begins? Jesus, being led by the Spirit, was led to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Even in this moment of weakness and temptation, God was with Jesus. In other words, when we suffer, we should not doubt that God has forsaken us. No, our suffering servant died and bled with us. And he is with us in our trials when we walk through the valley. So prayer answer does not necessarily mean circumstantial change. Perhaps some of us feel like, man, Jindo, I got nothing left. How can I even get going? I feel like I hit rock bottom. If you are there, Pastor Tony Evans once said, sometimes we have to hit rock bottom to know that God is the rock at the bottom. Even in your bottom, completely reckless state, God is still there with you. So church, do not lose heart. Call out to God. So Jonah begins his prayer by recognizing his distress as it is. Second, remember who God is. There begins to be slow shift in Jonah's mind. Look verse 6 and 7. To the roots of the mountain I sank down. The earth beneath barred me forever. But you, you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. My prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. The word remember, there is a million dollar word. There's another million dollar word will come up. I'll tell you when I get there. But here, Jonah's remembrance leads to what? He's remembering God and his prayer rose to him to your holy temple. In the Old Testament, holy temple is the sign, very presence of God that leads to worship. So Jonah's remembrance leads to worship in this text. Why is remembrance so crucial? Perhaps when I have more time, I'll walk us through proper biblical theology of worship. But briefly speaking, there are three main components of worship in biblical theology. Submission, obedience, and remembrance. Submission is in a sense, that's where we get the word worship. We bow down. We prostrate. We surrender our will before God. That's worship. When you prostrate before the king, you're defenseless. You're at the mercy of him. So we are surrendering our will, saying, Lord, not my kingdom, but your kingdom. Obedience. You do not only worship right now, but you worship as soon as you walk out too. You worship on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, all that. How? Because as we live out God's command, we don't only become the hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Obedience is an act of worship. 
And here, what does Jonah do? Remembrance, one of the main components of worship. In a sense, that's why we gather on Sunday mornings. Sunday morning, we gather to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. We remind ourselves, we remember who Jesus is and what he has done. So what do you remember in your prayer, in your life? Yes, it is very good to recognize your distress. But if you only remember your distress without remembering God, that prayer will soon turn into a pity party. But in the end, your prayer needs to shift. That's how psalmist prays often. God, life is so hard. But there's a slow shift, but I remember you. What do you remember? What consumes your mind today? What's your mind? Help me. So, recognize your distress. Remember who God is. Third, reorder your love. Read verse 8. To those cling to worthless idols, turn away from God's love for them. The word translated there as worthless idols is a Hebrew word, hevleshav. It's a combination of two words, hevel and shav. Hevel means fog, breath. Shav, that means empty. Hevel, that word, is most famously in the used in the Old Testament in the book of where? Ecclesiastes. When Solomon talks in the Ecclesiastes, when the critic talks, vanity, vanity, all is vanity under the sun. It's all meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Hebrew word? Hevel, hevel. All is hevel under the sun. What does that mean? Hevelishop, here translated as worthless idol. You think, if only I have it, it would give us meaning of life. If only I have this, it would be something. As soon as you grab hold on to it, like a fog, it's empty. There's nothing there. What is it that you say, if only I have this, it will fulfill me? Jonah calls that worthless idol. And look at this. When Jonah said those are worthless idols, when you pursue that, it's not like you can pursue your idols and God at the same time. Those two are mutually exclusive. As you run to your Hevleshav, as you pursue those empty meaningless, you turn away from God. In this day, which master are you going to serve? Oftentimes, our confessionally say we pursue one thing, but in our day-to-day -day life, we are pursuing other things. I think David Foster Wallace, American novelist, really understood that well. Yeah, he was a prolific writer. His novel was nominated as a Pulitzer Prize in 20, 2012. Pulitzer Prize, like a Nobel Prize for the writers. Uh, he was also very well known for his commencement speech that he gave in Kenyan College. This is what he said in commencement speech. He's not a believer. He searched. He went to Catholicism and all. But his biographer tells us that in the end, he didn't really find God. But this is what he said that is absolutely fascinating about idolatry and worthless idols. He says, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. 
Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It's that they are unconscious. What does he mean by that? You, we all have meaning of life that we're desperately pursuing. As a people of God, our God should be Jesus Christ, our Lord. But functionally, what are you pursuing today? What are you saying? If only I have this. What is this worthless idol, fog that is empty that you desperately try to grab hold on to? If you see your tendency, fill the blank. It's time to reorder your love because when you cling to that, you're running away from God. You cannot have two at the same time. You might often hear us talking about reordering love in prayers and things like that. That's not my, my, my own. It was popularized by probably the one of the greatest theologians in greater Christendom. This, he was African theologian back in the 4th century. His name is St. Augustine. He said there's hierarchy of love. And that there's proper hierarchy of love. But when you flip that order, it will create havoc and dysfunction in your life. For example, I think it's common sense all of us know that we should love our family over our work, right? If you flip that order, if you love your fam work above your family, your family will be dysfunctional. There's no other way around it. There's right hierarchy of love. This is what he says in his book, City of God. Augustine says, Greed, for example, is not something wrong with gold. The fault lies in a man who perversely loves gold and for its sake abandons justice. Lust is not something wrong in a beautiful and attractive body. The fault lies in a soul which perversely delights in sensual pleasure to the neglect of their self-control. Pride is not something wrong in the one who loves power or in the power itself. The fault is in the soul which perversely loves its own power and has no thought for the justice of the omnipotent. What does Augustine say? If you love money above law, there will be crime, there will be injustice. If you love sensual, sexual pleasure above self-control, there will be abuse. If you love your own power more than loving our supreme, sovereign, all-powerful God, then there will be pride thinking you are the one who ruled the world. And it will create incredible dysfunction in our lives. So where are you? Our confessional God is Jesus Christ our Lord. He reigns supreme at the top. But what is your functional God that you're desperately trying to grab hold on to today? If only I have this, I will be somebody. It will create havoc in your life. For Jonah, why, how does dysfunction happen? He loved and treasured his self-righteousness. So much more treasuring God's love, God's compassion for the nations. And as a result, he's in the deep down of the ocean. Reorder your love, Chilton. Let me check my heart. So Jonah here recognized all this distress. And he remembers who God is. And then he checks his heart. Okay, when I pursue these worthless idols, there's destruction. And finally, how does Jonah move into? Fourth, recommit your volition, your conscious choice and decision. Read verse 9. What does it say? But I, with a shout of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I'll make good. I will say salvation come from the Lord. Notice the language of I will. 
but I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will make good. I will declare salvation come from the Lord. The language of I will is an act of will, your volition. Do you here realize that Jonah's prayer involves everything about who you are? It's not just your heart. It's not just your mind, not just your will. But Jonah recognized his heart. God, life is so hard for me. I'm in the deep down of the sea. But it involves his mind. God, but I choose to remember you. And that it leads to action. So this day, I will choose to hope. By remembering our suffering servant, I will choose to live. So prayer involves heart, mind, and will. It involves all three components. And as a result, how does that end? Jonah declares, salvation come from the Lord. A to the man for that. Sometimes we think salvation comes from our worthless idols. As if those can save you, right? But those gods that you're pursuing, functional gods that we are pursuing often, if you fail to meet those gods, it will kill you. If you meet those gods, whatever, whether it be money or power, it will only leave you more thirsty than ever before. You will only want more. But if you pursue Jesus Christ, when you meet him, he will satisfy you. If you fail him, he will forgive you. Pursue Jesus. And we declare salvation come from the Lord. We know this better than Jonah. Why do we know this better than Jonah? Because we can also say salvation came from the Lord. Jesus Christ descended at the cross for us. He suffered and bled for us. So now we are people of God. Declares, Jesus, you loved us to death. So in my hardship and life, yes, Lord, life is hard. I recognize that. Yet I choose to remember our suffering servant who suffered for us. And Lord, in Jesus' name I pray there is power. There is hope in Jesus' name. We choose to live according to God's word with hope and power. Where are we today? Do we know Jesus, what he has done for us? What is it? Life can be very difficult. It's okay to not okay, church. Jesus sees you just as where you are. Remember who he is. Reorder your love and let us commit our lives. We surrender him. We remember him. And then we live according to God's word. We live a life of obedience. Let's pray together. Oh, God. We thank you that we have a suffering servant who suffered for us. So in our distress, you do not forsake us or leave us. It only plunges us deeper into the grace of you. Yet God, help us to not do a pity party in our prayers only. It took three days and three nights for Jonah in our prayer life, O oh Lord. Help us to keep remind ourselves who you are. Help us to repent. Help us to reorder our love. Oh God, are we pursuing any worthless idols today? Hevel, always empty. But why are we desperately trying to grab hold of those things? Help us to reorder our love to you supremely. May you reign at the supreme top of that hierarchy of love. And oh Lord, we commit to you. We live our lives to you as we do so. God, I pray that you will continually strengthen us. I especially lift up those who are walking through the valley today. And may you speak to them. May you let them know that they are not alone. So, Lord, we look to you. So in Jesus' hopeful name we pray.